you're listening to Have You Ever Heard Of? A history podcast. You can support us by following us on Patreon, Twitter and Instagram at Have You Ever Pod. Hi, Katie. How are you? Good. It's been a while. It's been a while. I mean, not since we've seen each other. No, no, no. But it's been a while since we've recorded. I think it was February that we last recorded. Was it? I think so. I know it's been a really long time. We've chosen the hottest day ever to to get back to recording. It's like 32 degrees in London right now. And I have turned off my fan because my mic is very sensitive, so I am melting. By the end of this, I'm just going to be a puddle of Katie on the floor. It's like, it's proper Australia temperatures. It's ridiculous. It's hotter than the sun. This is hell. Actually hell, that's what hell's meant to be, isn't it? Just very a very hot place. We should let people know why we haven't been around. One of the reasons is because we've both got new jobs. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. I moved house, which is pretty cool. I kept getting COVID. Yeah, Dan had COVID like three times in a row. That's <laughs> ridiculous. I got over it and just got it again. I mean, like, I guess I've probably had all the variants now, so I should ho- I should hopefully just be immune forever. Now I say that, I'm going to get it yeah. next week again. Dan's got like... a variant nobody else has had. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> My body created its own variant. As well, we wanted to decide on a very cool subject to start off with again. So this season, I guess, a mini season, whatever we're calling it, this this topic is new identities, right? That's what we're calling it. New beginnings. New beginnings, new identities. New identities. That sort of thing. Well, that, sort of, that sort of jazz. For us as a podcast <laughs> and for these people, such things that we're talking about. Should I know about my person then? It's a person. Is it a person? Oh, well, it's we're a going person. back to the original remit. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of? Ermgard Kuhn. I have not, but that sounds like a... It's got a very cool name, so... She is very cool. Let's start with childhood and personal life, and then we'll get into what she actually did uh, to make her part of this new Identities, New Beginnings series. Very nice. So, she was born on the 6th of February 1905 in Charlottenburg, which was at the time an independent town, but it's now part of Berlin, in Germany. Her parents were Eddard and Elsa Kuhn. Her father was an agent for a company that imported petrol, and uh-huh. her mum was a housewife. Wait, uh, so by independent town? Yeah. It's still like part of Germany? Yeah, yeah, it's it, just it was a just pen- like... it wasn't part of Berlin at the time, oh, okay, but then. it is now. So it's been like smushed into So Berlin. like... I guess like Croy- Croydon is now Croydon's not part of London, is it? Or is it part of London now? It is. It is. Is it? Is but, it? Like okay. just about. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> trying to get away, but. <laughs> but I mean, Reading's to be part of London soon, so. Now it would just, just be, the, just be the Republic of London. Exactly, that's what's happening. Just that would be great. Of, I'd love that. All the south of England should be London. Fair enough, I say. Bring it on. Bring it the on. The better. <laughs> Kuhn actually later recalled that her mother was quite domestically inclined in a very horrible way. Oh. So I don't know what that means. That's... But 
She herself wasn't very domestic as well. Okay, <laughs> I, I can happily Being harsh that. about her own mum. Fair enough. She and her family, which included a brother, Gerd, who was born in uh, 1910, lived in the city until 1913, and then they moved to Cologne. There, Kuhn attended a Lutheran girls' school, and she graduated in 1921. Then she worked as a genotypist and also attended acting school in Cologne from 1925 to 1927. She had a couple of stage roles, one in Hamburg, well, a couple in Hamburg. These were somewhat successful, but she actually gave up on that career in 1929, and she began writing. Obviously, for those of you who know my research and also German history, Writing in the 1930s in Germany can be a bit of a dangerous mm. sport. <laughs> yeah, that is a that's a tough <laughs> occupation. If you want to like live and stuff. If you want to like not get kicked <laughs> yeah. out. Okay, so this is where my German pronunciation is going to be tested. So, <laughs> in 1931, Kuhn's first novel, which is called Gilgi ein von uns, was published and became an immediate success. In 1932, her second novel, which I'm just going to say in English, is The Artificial Silk Girl, came out. At the time, there were allegations of plagiarism of a novel by Robert Newman, but actually that's been well disproven. Okay. This novel became a massive success as well. She became very popular. The Nazis didn't exactly approve of The Artificial Silk Girl. The story is about a young girl in contemporary Berlin who resorts to prostitution. And I will talk a little bit more about her novels in general at the end, but they really didn't like the content of this book. And when they came to power in 1933, there was trouble for Kuhn. One contemporary reviewer, I wanted to call this person a Nazi reviewer, but I can't really say that because I really don't know if this person was a Nazi, but... You know, contemporary to the Nazis, probably a Nazi reviewer. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to be allowed to, like, write reviews of books, then you probably have to be in Yeah, exactly. So they said, called it, A Vulgar Aspersions Against German Womanhood. Oh, boy. So Kuhn was backlisted. Just before we move on to the Nazi period, which, if you don't know, will be 1933 to 1945, quick note on her personal life. In 1932, Kuhn married writer and director Johannes Trollo. They were actually technically married for another five years when they were divorced, but they weren't like together mm. geographically for like any of that time. She later claimed after 1945 that he was a Nazi sympathizer, and that's one of the reasons they broke up. However, there's also evidence to say that they stayed in touch after 1933. And there may have been other personal reasons, but we don't know. Was he a sympathiser before they got together? Like, when did she find out? Like, how did she get, like, so far that she got married? Like, I don't actually know, in all honesty. There's, this is actually probably being a quite short episode because there's not loads of information mm. on her life. So what I do have is in this, and I don't know any more than <laughs> I have. Um, but there are more romances to come, don't you worry. Non-Nazi romances? Oh, yay. <laughs> so during the Nazi period, 33 to 45, interwar and war, it's hard to piece together exactly what was going on with Kin. 
So there's a man called Michael Hoffman who translated some of her novels into English. And he knows quite a lot about Kuhn. He said that definite biographical facts about Kuhn are very thin. He does say that she had certain feelings towards the Nazis, however. To her, they were idiots dressing up in uniforms and shouting and goose-stepping all about the place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty good summing up. So following her blacklisting, she... Oh my gosh, this is one of the things that made me realise that she was legend. She tried to sue the Gestapo for loss of income. (laughs) (laughs) Like, have you ever heard of this before? Someone trying to (laughs) sue the Gestapo, I I was like, yes. I mean, like it's it's a it's a bold strategy. Let's see if it let's see if it pans out for her. <laughs> well, it was unsuccessful. She uh, <laughs> she didn't manage to see them, and because of this, in thirty three thirty four, her books were confiscated and banned by the Nazis. Kuhn then fled Germany. She went between France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. She joined other German writers who were in exile, such as Thomas Mann. Stefan Zwieg and Joseph Roth. Unlike other writers, she wrote more like reality-based fiction. These other writers most mostly wrote like historical fiction, mm-hmm. and that made her more of a like, political target than the others. Mm-hmm. It's quite funny though, because I mean, like, I guess that like that book about girl goes inside prostitution is probably about how tough life was like during the the like. Into a period, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what her books are about. They were trying to address the the struggles of real people in Germany, yeah. which is interesting because I mean, like that would have been during like the Weimar period. So you would have thought maybe Nazis would have kind of like gripped onto that and been like, "This is the chaos of the Weimar period. This is what we're going to fix," rather than like, well, not yeah. quite because she was that one was published the year that the Nazis came in. So the oh, one really? before was Weimar, but that one was the year. Okay, so Nazis came in in 33. For example, another one of her books in After Midnight, which was published in 1937. So she's still writing while she's mm-hmm. on the on the lam. <laughs> <laughs> it's a young woman who falls in love with her cousin, only to have her aunt sabotage the relationship by informing the police that the young woman had insulted Nazi leader Hermann Goering. So she uses real Nazis in her books like she has no fear nice (laughs) she did continue to publish but her work only reached a small number of dutch readers as she could no longer publish in germany as an example the artificial silk girl sold nearly fifty thousand copies before being banned and her subsequent novels reached less than five percent of that so it's a it's a massive like downturn for her had they been like um translated into english at that point Not at that point. We'll get to that. So news began circulating after this publication that Kuhn had taken her own life. Oh, Hoffman, the translator I talked about earlier, said of this period, she was still in Holland in 1940 and her suicide was announced by a British newspaper. It's actually the British Daily Telegraph, just for some context, and it was reported... Not the Tory Graph. 16th of August, my birthday, 1940. Somehow, she took advantage of that, got some false papers, and went back to her parents across the border in Cologne. So, she hadn't committed suicide. (laughs) She... Faked her own death. Yeah, either worked with an editor to fake her own death, or it was a a real mistake, and she just took advantage of it. it. Either way, she bossed it. (laughs) At some point, she also... May have claimed to have seduced a Nazi official in the Netherlands, but 
that's her own account, so maybe she'd mention. How did she cross the border? Well, using a new identity, of course, and that's why she falls under this category. <laughs> and the name was Charlotte Trollo. That was her middle name, Charlotte, and her married name, which she didn't use, like would have been her married uh-huh. name. So Charlotte Trollo was her new name that she used up until 45 when she could go back to being Coon. Like I said, she lived undercover in Germany, in Cologne, until 1945, when she could finally be herself in her country again. Which I think is an absolute boss. Oh, that's uh, brave, I don't know. They've got like the uh, the Gestapo kind of, it's not really a museum, but it's like the, I suppose they used to like torture people in Cologne. Hmm. And like, it's kind of, like it's kind of in a basement, but like basically, like, you know, like on those like base, basement like windows, like the kind of like window things you get like in between like the sidewalk and the bottom of a building. Apparently, basically, they just used to leave that open so people could just hear whoever they were torturing, just like screaming, just as wow. like a warning. So that was yeah, just hiding out clone. High level, take some uh, disgusting. Yeah. What was Kian doing in her personal life during this time? In the spring of 1933, she met and fell in love with Arnold Strauss, a Jewish doctor who wanted to treat her for her alcoholism. Yes, she had problems with alcohol. Don't all writers. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, like, isn't that the point of being a writer? Mild to moderate alcohol. I mean, like, that's what, that, was my, that was my plan originally. <laughs> Your plan? Right now, I was being an alcoholic, but it never panned <laughs> out for me, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, if you'd written a novel, then you could have... Some... Exactly. Yeah. Then basically you can get away with being, like, an alcoholic. Now, just being an alcoholic would be rubbish. But if I was, like, a writer... If one had been like, yeah, wow, be he's like, so mysterious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're so be, like, troubled. A sad case. <laughs> I'd be like... Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it just goes, goes hand in hand, doesn't it? It's like legend. Rather than sad, it's like legendary. Be like, oh, <laughs> I don't know what are... I'm going on about. Yeah, like, you just want to be an alcoholic, Dan. Yeah, yeah, that's basically, that was my plan. So Strauss, as a Jew, lost his position at the Berlin Hospital that employed him and went to the USA in 1935. Thank God. <laughs> um, however, they did stay in touch and many of their letters survive. Somewhere between 1936 and 1938, she also lived with Joseph Roth, the writer, while at the same time pursuing a relationship with Strauss in the US. And I remember during this whole time, she's also still technically married. <laughs> Which makes I mean, her an absolute You're allowed to do that. Like, pen, like long distance pen, pen friends like relationship. I mean, you're allowed to do. You're allowed to have a bit on the side if you're just doing that right. And she can't yeah, get into count. Germany, so she can't be exactly, with her. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I'm just justifying all of her affairs. I think I'm sure that's one of the rules they mention on like uh, the film Road Trip. Such a high quality film. <laughs> Pretty sure. <laughs> high quality. <laughs> so actually, she even visited Strauss in Virginia in 1938, but returned to Europe the same year. She had many friends as well in the literary world, such as Egon Erwin Kitsch, Herman Ketzen, Stefan. Uh, Stefan Zwig, uh, Ernst Toller, Ernst Weiss, and Hermann Mann. From 1936 to 1938, she had the already relationship with Joseph Roth, and she said that this had a positive effect on her literary output. She worked together with Roth, travelling from various cities from Paris, to Warsaw, to Vienna, to Brussels, and Amsterdam, and that kind of invigorated her writing. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, basic kind of, like, comfort is, like, the enemy of creativity. So you have to kind of go through that, I think. That's another thing. You need to be an alcoholic, and you need to just, like, get around. To paraphrase <laughs> the Beach Boys, you need to get around. Or maybe that is just the actual lyric. I kind of can't remember. Know. We get around. Basically, do that. What the Beach Boys say. That's how, oh, that's how, you, boys. Be, that's how you be creative. Yeah, I can get around. So, post-war. Her last book was published in 1950. And we're going to talk about her novels in a second. It was called Fernland. And that was her final novel. She had a daughter in 1951, though she never revealed the identity of the father, as far as I know to this day. In the 1960s, her life was overshadowed by alcoholism and homelessness, in spite of the help from the literary community. In 1966, she was put under tutelage and committed to a psychiatric ward in the Bomb State Hospital, where she remained until 1972. So that's six years. Oh man, that's quite a a fool. So in the 1970s, a new wave of German readers rediscovered Kuhn. This is partly with the help of an article from the Stern magazine, which was published in 1977. The young Germans were trying to make sense of their country's past. I mean, many of them, their parents had been involved in what had happened during the war. And Kuhn's work addresses some of this. Her stories are mostly of average women in this kind of ironic style that really appealed to like the young germans at the time hmm. from 1979 onwards her financial situation recovered thanks to these new editions of her work one year before her death this is in 1981 she was awarded the first mary louise fleiser pires i hope that's right which is a literary award basically and then she died in cologne in 1982 of lung cancer so let's talk about before we talk about legacy we'll talk about her novels so she's got five five main novels and these are them so the first one which i mentioned before was 1931 and it was called jilji it was like an overnight sensation uh it sold thousands of copies making her like a household name straight away it's a story of a young woman trying to establish her independence in a society being overtaken by fascism it's a very brave story. It's revolutionary. It talks about women's issues. Um, the main character, um, called Jilji, is a secretary in a hosiery firm. But she doesn't intend to stay there for long. She's disciplined and ambitious, taking language classes, saving up for money to go abroad, carefully avoiding both the pouring of her boss and any other prolonged romantic entanglements. She then falls in love with a man called Martin, a charming drifter and leaves her job for domestic bliss which turns out to not be so blissful <laughs> she gets pregnant and faces a number of moral dilemmas so the story is about sexual harassment abortion single motherhood and something you might call like the new woman oh, wow. and it was a sensation so actually so she did like just like kind of like directly attack like the rise of fascism then yeah, pretty much. I mean, I need to read these books. I haven't read any of them, but I am try- I'm going to try and get them in my library and I'm going to... Yeah, I'm interested. This, they sound really interesting. Yeah. Like, a drifter. How, like, do, like for marrying a drifter and then ending up in domestic bliss, that just sounds like uh, that's a recipe for trouble. Mm. 
Don't know. Tell me about it. She says. <laughs> okay, so then we have the artificial silk girl, which I've talked about briefly in 1932. Um, so this is about a young woman writer living in Germany and talks about and talks about like pre-war Berlin in the age of uh, cinematic glamour through the eyes of this woman. It's kind of like that Christopher Isherwood Berlin story style, which I actually read recently, the Goodbye to Berlin, mm. and that kind of almost diary style. And that kind of dark underside of Berlin's golden 20s. Oh, cool. Then we've got After Midnight in 1937 about a pair of friends, Sauna and Gertie, and they would talk about love more than they would talk about politics, but then you can't really escape politics in 1930s Frankfurt, which is where it's based. They cross town to meet Gertie's Jewish lover and a blockade pass cuts off their path. It is the Fuhrer and his motorcade procession and the crowd goes mad, striving to catch a glimpse of Hitler's raised empty hand. Then the parade is over and in the long hours after midnight Sanna and Gertie will face all sorts of things. Betrayal, death, heartbreak and just reality. So that one sounds pretty dark but pretty interesting. Uh, In 1938 we have Child of All Nations uh, which is about a character named Cully. She learns a lot of things you don't know in school. She knows the right way to roll a cigarette, to pack a suitcase, that cars are more dangerous than lions. She knows <laughs> that you can't enter a country without a passport or visa. And she knows that her and her parents will never go back to Germany again because her father's books are banned there. wonder where Kuhn got the idea from. <laughs> but she also doesn't understand why there would be a war. Like, just that there are men named Hitler, Mussolini, and Chamberlain involved, but doesn't really understand the buzz behind it. So that's a kind of naivety, but also street smart kind of character. And then we have a big gap <laughs> before <laughs> Ferdinand, the man with the kind heart, published 1950. And in Bonsal Cologne, after the war, is it's a very strange place to be. There's a black market and it's booming. Half-destroyed houses offer opportunities for stealing doors and egg cups. And there's a denazification that parties are like all the rage. Recently released from Prisoner of War Camp, Ferdinand drifts around the city, avoiding his fiancée and drinking brandy with his fabulous cousin. (laughs) But he's basically kind of thinking about coming back to this city that he doesn't recognise anymore. And this is clearly a very personal work because it's someone who was ousted from the city that they called home and then flung back into it and doesn't recognise it anymore. Interesting. Okay, so in terms of legacy, Kuhn received great acclaim for her sharp-witted books, most notably from such well-known authors as Alfred Dublin and Kurt Chomsky, who said about her a woman writer with humour. Check this out. (laughs) (laughs) Kuhn utilises her character for novels to highlight and critique social problems in the early 30s. Um, Her biggest criticisms are of uh, consumerism, complexity of feminine identity, and obviously fascism. (laughs) Also, her female protagonist's relationships with men. She broke the archetypal mould in terms of feminine identity and challenged the idea that women should be placed into a category. In an interview, 
Kuhn's daughter, Martina, answered the question if her mother was a happy woman. And she said, well, she always said that Nazis took her best years. Starting in 1933, her success was abruptly ended through the book burning until 45-46. It's a pretty long time. Yeah, that's the thing. That's got to suck. Like, if you had your, like, 20s. Your youth during, like, that repressive, like, period. That's got to suck. You are just losing your life. And that's the story of Kuhn and her oh, assumed identity, though she only had to use it for like <laughs> seven years, but still, I, I thought it was good enough to include. <laughs> I definitely have to check out those like early books. I was, yeah, I'm quite interested in that. If the the transition from like Weimar, either like kind of like basically the party town, like liberalism, the Weimar Republic, and like the backlash. I mean, it must have been crazy. I mean, like, it feels like that's what's happening now, a bit. Even, like, Trump and stuff. I know Trump is gone, but, I mean, like, that's, that dark cloud is still hanging over us. Boris is gone, but God knows who we're going to get instead of him. Like, it could be something even worse. Hopefully what we'll get is a general election. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, uh... I didn't mention, sorry, this is one of the reasons I want to talk about her as well, is that some of her books were published into English for the first time only last year. Oh, really? So if you're fancying any of these books, they are published by Penguin. So you can oh, cool. go out and probably get them in the Waterstones now. Nice. Um, have you got any recommendations for our listeners? I think I've been watching something interesting. Or reading, or listening. Only like the only standard stuff, like The Boys. A lot of people recommend The Boys to me. Everyone knows about that, though. People don't need me recommending that. <laughs> I read a really good book. It's by a Belgian author called Lies Spit. It's called The Melting. And it is incredible. It does have a couple of scenes that people with sensitive dispositions might not like. <laughs> but if you can handle it, it, I thoroughly recommend it. Five-star book. Ten out of ten. Nice. And... I also recommend The Restless Politics, the greatest podcast you haven't listened to if you're in the UK. Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart talking about yeah. all that week's politics, and I love them. Yeah, I it's brilliant. adore them. You have to go and listen it's to It's the uh, bridge across the great divide that we've needed for a long time. I love <laughs> Rory Stewart, though. He's an alright Tory. Yeah, me too. And he's not even really a Tory anymore. He no, actually, he's not. I don't. I think she's, he's even left the party. He's just an Yeah, yeah, he got now, booted so. out. Well, I mean, Boris. like, he doesn't even have a membership anymore, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure. I never understood why he wasn't Lib Dem. Like, he is... He's basically a Lib Dem. You can't have everyone. <laughs> I mean, like, we wish we could. <laughs> We're a broad church, too broad, if anything. <laughs> yeah, you're the Hufflepuff of, um, <laughs> of, of political parties. Um, also, I could recommend that you go to our new Patreon, where if you sign up for one English pound, only one pound a month then you'll get an exclusive archived podcast so we're archiving old podcasts and you'll get to listen to them i actually just put up anne of cleves and shanghai check which is no longer on our feed but you can listen to it if you join our patreon and you can also vote in our poll of what we will do next season oh we got a poll oh yeah but we will when i put it up (laughs) (laughs) that is exciting you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HaveYouEverPod. That's it, I think. That's all the good stuff. And see you next time. Bye! Bye. <laughs>